me get this kicked off here. Um, I am Will Fenton, the Director of Scholarly Innovation at the Library Company of Philadelphia. For those of you who don't know the Library Company, we were founded in 1731 by Benjamin Franklin as sort of the library for his junto, his leather apron club. And uh, we have continued to grow and thrive over the past almost 300 years. And today we are a destination for anybody working in early American literature, history and culture, women's history, African-American history, print and visual culture, and of course, political economy. Um, um, one quick call to action for everybody tuned in right now. If you aren't already on our email list, think about joining it. It doesn't cost a darn thing. All you have to do is go to librarycompany.org the bottom of the homepage, you can sign up and then you will hear about all these great things that we do, including firesides, but not exclusively firesides. We're always working on lots of different things. So I think it's a great sort of entry point to our institution. So with that, I've gone on long enough. Let me take a moment to introduce our esteemed guest tonight. Dr. Allison K. Lange is Associate Professor of History at Wentworth Institute of Technology. She received her PhD in history from Brandeis University. The subject of tonight's fireside is her book, Picturing Political Power, Images and Women's Suffrage Movement, published just earlier this month by the University of Chicago Press. Congratulations. Um, Dr. Lange's book focuses on the way that women's rights activists and their opponents used images to define gender and power during the suffrage movement. Dr. Lange is the recipient of numerous prestigious fellowships, including notably the William H. Helfand Fellowship in American Visual Culture at the Library Company in 2012. Thank you for joining us, Allison. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you all for joining me for the next hour or so of conversation. Um, but first, of course, I'm gonna tell you a little bit more about the topic. And I'm very excited to talk with you today about the images of the women's voting rights movement. It's certainly archives like the library company um, and the wonderful archivists. Um, I already saw that Connie King is on the on our conversation, and it's you know wonderful to be able to share many years later, you know what um, what happened, what I did with all of that research. So I'm very excited to uh, to share that with you today. So we're going to start off thinking about the images of the women's suffrage that is the focus of today's talk and i am going to actually start us probably far earlier than any of us might be expecting we often think of the suffrage movement and 1848 and seneca falls but i'm actually going to start us off in 1775 um, this is a print called a society of patriotic ladies at edenton in north carolina and if you remember anything about 1775, we know that there are debates among the colonists about what's happening in, uh, in the colonies um, and in Great Britain. And the American Revolution is very much, you know, uh, coming to a head. It gets very much down the road. And this is a mezzotint that was printed in London, actually. And it depicts a gathering of women who are going to boycott tea and they're signing this tea document that we see on the table in front of them. But when we look at it, we can see that it is not a, uh, a, a positive representation of them boycotting tea here. We see um, beneath the table, the, they have abandoned this child and the dog is the only one paying attention to this child. And the dog is of course urinating on a tea canister, which is actually something that's quite common um, in these images. 
Um, there are women gathering around a table. Um, they don't look particularly feminine or particularly beautiful according to the ideal standards of the day. The woman in the, with the gavel has a hooked nose, um, a rather um, unflattering face um, proportion-wise. Um, in the background, we have a woman holding up a punch bowl. And um, you can guess that that punch bowl has liquor in it. So they're getting drunk. They are being wooed by lovers, as we see in the center of the scene, in order to participate in politics, in order to abandon you know, their, their homes, their children, and participate in this American revolution. So we see the gender tables being turned, being upturned. Um, but we also see some questions about what's going to happen with race if this revolution continues in the background. We have a woman, a black woman, holding out a tray with a with a quill pen, and she looks at the document interested too. And the suggestion is that you know these if these women are going to be allowed to take part of this revolution, you know, participate in politics, maybe black women should also be allowed to participate in politics. And just to remind us, 1775 North Carolina she's probably representing an enslaved woman at this time. So the idea is that this revolution, you know, from Philip Dawes' view um, in London, he's never seen these women, he has never been to the colonies before, he's just probably read a little snippet in a newspaper and thought that this, this cartoon would amuse some people, um, is imagining that this revolution is being carried out by women, which is absurd, and then perhaps also in women of color, enslaved people, right? So this, it threatens um, the very existence. And the reason why we're starting in 1775, and the reason why we're starting with an image making fun of women's rights, is because these images, these conventions, these anti-women's rights pictures, they remain extremely popular throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. We are going to encounter these same kinds of themes that women will become masculine, that they will abandon their families, et cetera, um, if they gain the, a political voice. And the reason why we're also starting um, in, with an anti-suffrage image is that we need to understand that these were extremely popular images, image types, image conventions that Americans encountered regularly. And it's because of these very negative images, these stereotypes that emerged in the 18th century, that the suffragists actually decided to create their own visual campaign later, because they needed to change the way that Americans saw women, that they, the ways they saw women in politics, women um, who were in public. They didn't want them to kind of conjure up images of these women whenever they thought of suffragists. To give you a sense of how this type of images really continued, this is from about 75 years later. It's called Bloomerism in Practice. This is a lithograph, a very cheap, easily reproducible print. Uh, and it shows, um, this is you know three years after the Seneca Falls Convention, the first year after the first National Women's Rights Convention in Worcester. A lot of these cartoons are everywhere because women's rights activism is increasingly everywhere. We see on the wall in, in the background here a, uh, a sign showing the, that, that says Women's Rights Convention. So this um, Mrs. Turkey is in the center. She's uh, kind of the, the president, the, the head of this women's rights movement in this uh, cartoon. 
And next to her, you might be surprised to know is her husband. He's a man, you know, hunched over, looking like perhaps an older woman who is mending clothing. He's doing these menial tasks. Um, and that's because she's the one who is leisurely attending these conventions and leading political movements. She's of course ignoring the child who's crying in front of, uh, in front of her with a sign saying no more Papa and Mama, right? And in the background, we have yet another reference to the fact that women's voting rights will not only disrupt uh, the gender hierarchy, it will also disrupt the racial hierarchy, right? We have two women. Uh, one is holding a sign saying no more basement and kitchen. So she's probably a worker, um, suggesting that these working class women will also want rights. Um, and no more Massa and Misses, right? So that's suggesting that um, slavery is also threatened as well as the racial hierarchy there. And while we might look at their dresses and think that they're wearing very long skirts, they're being very proper, in the 19th century, these skirts would have been seen as scandalously short. And um, the, the woman smoking pipes um, would have been seen as uh, shocking, certainly not something that women were doing in public. And here's one example from the library company, which is called Wearing the Breeches. So at this time we see in this picture, the woman in the center is wearing bloomers. Um, it's in the 1850s, early 1850s, that women's rights activists start wearing bloomers. And that's what we have here, a, a cartoon about women wearing bloomers. Um, it says, wearing the breeches, wearing the breeches, know that all our experience teaches. A woman forgetting what's due her sex, is ready for vice and all it annexes, right? So she is smoking, she has her hand in a pocket, um, has this very masculine stance and very masculine clothing on. So this is something that's very popular. I'm just moving on. So now we're about a century out from that original image that we looked at from 1775. This is from Courier and Ives. If you've ever heard of the song, you know, Sleigh Ride, the Christmas song, Courier and Ives is a very, very popular um, uh, lithography firm in the 19th century. They make very cheap decorative prints that Americans can purchase at local stores, but also through the mail. And they published this one in 1869. It's the age of brass or the triumphs of women's rights. So as we know, 1869, this is the years after the Civil War, and the other major voting rights um, that, that are being debated right now is, of course, Black men's rights. Um, and so 1869 is right around the passage of the 15th Amendment, which prohibits uh, voter discrimination based on race. And so it's at this moment that people are thinking, you know, well, you know, what is the amendment going to be? It hadn't been fully set in stone yet. Um, and should women vote? And this cartoon, I think it's fair to say, does not suggest that's such a great idea. The woman is holding a sign saying, vote for the celebrated man tamer, Susan Sharp Tongue. Um, and in the, on the right, we have one of my favorite tropes of these 19th century images, which is a man carrying a baby, which is kind of the end of the world for these, uh, for these cartoonists, right? So these women were, were supposed to be um, caring for their households and they were, she's, scolding her husband and making him take care of the child. And he looks uh, very appalled by this. You know, he, he doesn't know what to do with this. This is kind of um, suggesting that the world will turn upside down if women win the right to vote. 
And in response to these images, suffragists are trying to think of a way, what, what can they do, right? So for much of the 19th century, they're very loosely organized. They don't have much money. Um, the illustrated newspapers that we were looking at here, these are made by firms with plenty of money and a, and a wide distribution rate. Um, but in 1850s and early 1860s, a new photography process makes it possible for the first time to sell really cheap photographs to the general public and to sell it even on your own. And so Sojourner Truth is one of the first women's voting rights activists to actually take charge of this new medium and try and find a way to make it work for her. Um, she was born in the late 1790s in New York. She was born in an enslaved woman. Um, and she was enslaved for the first several decades of her life until slavery in New York was ab abolished. And she ended up becoming a, a major reformer. She eventually moved to Massachusetts. She became part of these reform networks in Massachusetts, anti-slavery at first, and then uh, women's rights activism. She became a very popular speaker on the women's rights and civil rights circuit. Um, and in 1850, she published an autobiography about her life, very much modeled after Frederick Douglass's autobiography published five years before. She also, like Douglas, decided that selling her photograph was a way that she could engage with the public uh, in a really meaningful way. She was illiterate. She could not read or write, despite the fact that she has a book in this photograph. Um, and uh, But so this was one way that she could actually reach people that was seemed less mediated. People were telling stories about her. Um, as the Libyan Sybil, for example, kind of creating this mythical versions of herself. And this was a way that she could actually communicate with her public, but also sell this photograph to make money to support herself, right? So we see the bottom where the text says, I sell the shadow to support the substance. In the 19th century, the photographs were literally made on glass plates. There's a shadow um, using sunlight to create these photographs. So shadow is a popular term to, for a photograph. And it was, I sell the shadow to support the substance. So herself, as well as the substantial reforms that she wanted to pass. So this photograph, we see her seated. We see some knitting in her hand. She has a shawl over her shoulders. Very simple, plain dress for 19th century standards, at least. She also has a very plain white head wrap on, and that really emphasizes that she is a worker, that she is someone who, um, who works for a living, who labors. She's not wearing a frilly, um, a frilly hairpiece like Stanton is in the portrait next to her. One of the things she's really trying to do with this photograph is claim her own respectability to create a public image of herself because she knows what women's rights activists, how they're depicted in the media. And she knows the way that African-Americans are represented um, in popular culture as well. And both of them are horrible stereotypes of political women, of people of color. And she is trying to counter that with this photograph here. And within just a few years, um, particularly Susan B. Anthony, but also Elizabeth K. Stanton becomes interested in distributing photographs of suffragists, particularly portraits. And Stanton and Anthony actually sat for this phot photograph in 1870 um, in Napoleon Serenese's studio in New York. 
And he actually sold it there for many years. We know that because the card lists his address and we have several different versions of this photograph from several different addresses over the years. And they look a bit more aggressive, a bit more determined than Sojourner Truth does next to them. So they have a book open on the table and they look like they are ready to put this movement in motion. And so they are kind of claiming their place um, very much at the head of this movement in 1870. And they needed to do this, right? Because these anti-women's rights images are still popular. And one thing that you'll see changed, has changed between the previous cartoons and this one is that we can tell that this one is Susan B. Anthony. So previous cartoons just show generic women, but now the artist really expects the viewer to know what she looks like, the way we might expect the viewer to know what our president looks like, right? It's, it's an assumption. The, the title does not include Anthony's name. Um, it's called The Woman Who Dared. And the artist seems to have not liked Anthony much. He wanted to make sure that um, people even saw one of her um, eye uh, deformities. Um, she often sat for profile portraits and that's because she was very self-conscious about her eye. And you can see in this high-res zoomed-in version that the artist decided to kind of replicate that uh, in this particular portrait. Otherwise, you can see a lot of the same themes that we've been thinking about so far. Uh, a female police officer is on one side, a man carrying a baby, and another one carrying groceries on the other side. All the while in the background, there is a political rally led by women, which is absolutely not something that women were doing in 1873. It's really not until the 1910s that women are doing public protests. And this is certainly not a flattering portrait of Anthony herself anyway. She has her hand on her hip. Uh, she's got this umbrella that um, suffragists kind of commented, uh, made her look like she was you know, a general, that she had this sword. Um, her skirt is far too short for 1873, and she actually even has spurs on her boots. So this is you know, a very masculine uh, representation of Anthony to suggest that this is the kind of person that she is. And I think it's really useful to note that you know, I've come across a few instances of people writing into a, a newspaper saying, you know, I went to go see this suffragist talk and she didn't look very masculine after all, right? So people really, you know, these stereotypes are very much part of American culture. But the suffragists don't want to look like that. They want to look like these leading political figures. And this is a campaign poster from 1880, just to give you a sense of what um, you know, presidential leading leading male figures look like. These are probably far more familiar types of images to us today even. Um, and so the suffragists decide to, especially Anthony, decide to create the History of Women's Suffrage, which is a six volume series that each volume has a thousand pages in it. And this series really defined a history of the suffrage movement. And it also defined who the important people of the suffrage movement were. And Susan B. Anthony was in charge of writing women's rights activists across the country, having them mail in their photographs and getting securing an engraver to copy them. Um, and she told them what she wanted. She wanted them to make sure that they send in their best photographs. 
Um, and that if they didn't have one photograph that they thought was the best, they could send in multiple photographs and tell her which one had the best eyes or which one had the best lips, et cetera. So this is very much, you know, intended to be an idealized um, image of these female leaders. Um, and these suffragists decided to exclude any men. So one thing we often forget about today is the fact that there were so many male suffragists in the 19th century and into the early 20th century. Um, you know, for example, Susan B. Anthony worked closely with Parker Pillsbury. Um, there are people like uh, Henry Brown Blackwell who founded the American Women's Suffrage Association with Lucy Stone and actually edited the Women's Journal. Um, but they get obscured in these narratives. And so do women of color. Susan B. Anthony could have chosen to include Sojourner Truth, who I'm sure was one of the people that inspired her to circulate to distribute her portraits, but she chose not to. And that's because they really wanted to emphasize that they were fighting for the vote for white women because that's what they thought would win them the most support. Because enfranchising African-American men was controversial enough. And a lot of Americans, particularly in the South, were extremely concerned that um, a 19th Amendment, a, an amendment enfranchising women, would bring more women of color to the polls as well. And so Susan B. Anthony and many of her other leading suffragists are you know, playing on these you know, white supremacist ideas in order to win over more people to their cause. And just to remind us, these anti-suffrage images are continuing. This is a fabulous stereo card from 1897. If you've never seen one of these before, you would um, use this little device um, that would make this actually appear three-dimensional. This is a very popular parlor activity in the late 19th century. And um, this particular uh, stereo card shows, and I'll zoom in on one side at least just for just so that we can see what's going on here. It's have dinner at one deer. So it's a man who's doing laundry and has to take care of the children. Um, very much exactly like what we saw, you know, in, in cartoons from a century earlier. And so there's this continuate continuation of these visual themes, um, you know, well past uh, for a very long time. And between the history of women's suffrage and the 1910s, we have a dramatic transformation within the women's suffrage movement. And that is toward a, a movement that is highly organized and strategic about their images. So Anthony was really doing a lot of this work on her own in the 1880s and 1890s. But in the, in the 1890s, that starts to change as the national organizations create press committees, you know, state, local, and national press committees. They eventually create publicity committees, art publicity committees. They found their own publishing company, a new generation of professional female artists like Rose O'Neill and Blanche James, whose picture we see here, become the, the artists of the suffrage movement, right? Previously, men were the editors, men were the artists, men were the publishers, but we have this transition around the turn of the century that really dramatically changes the kinds of images that suffragists can make accessible to the general public. So this is a, an illustration that was featured both in the Women's Journal, which was an extremely important uh, suffrage journal, so aimed at a suffrage audience, and the Boston Transcript, which is a more, you know, mainstream newspaper from 1915. It says double the power of the home 
two good boats are better than one. That is the title of this picture. And we see kind of a, a representation of a mother with her three children, very much similar to kind of Christian imagery of a Madonna and child scene. And it's, you know, an ideal home, right? We see a God bless our home sign in the background. In the back, there is a teapot um, on the stove, steaming and a cat in the side. And this is the idea that these white women who are you know, able to stay at home with their children, these are the women that we want to vote. Why wouldn't you want this woman to be able to have the right to vote? So that's the question that Blanche Ames asks here. This is a very popular theme by the 1910s in the suffrage movement. This is another great one um, by Rose O'Neill, who actually designed the Cupid doll. Um, and it says, give mother the vote, we need it. Um, and so it gives you a sense of why women who, if they're expected to take care of the home, take care of families, take care of children, um, why shouldn't they have the vote to take care of their families and their homes even more, right? Have actually more power over their children's health and their food, for example. So this is, a, this is another piece printed by the National Suffrage Publishing Company. So the, the types of people who are, uh, the ability for suffragists to kind of distribute these images is dramatically increased over the 1910s. And Americans are starting to see a shift in the suffrage movement, right? We've seen, you know, this is a picture from 1911. We saw the earlier representations of suffragists as these masculine, um, a kind of unfashionable women. Um, and that's the one on the left. Um, and on the right, we see that the type has changed. She's very fashionable. She has a very nice hat on. Um, she's very much based on the idea, the illustration of the very popular Gibson girl type from around the same time period. So suffrage is no longer just a political movement. It's, it's a fashionable movement among women. <clears throat> and one thing I want to point out is that these suffragists were emphasizing white women, as we, we kind of uh, I mentioned before, but Mary Church Terrell is one person who's trying to break into that a little bit. And she is one of the first uh, women of color in the United States to earn an undergraduate degree, which she does at Oberlin College. And she moves to Washington, DC, and she becomes a leading figure in the women's rights movement, especially among black women in Washington, DC. She eventually becomes elected in 1896 the first national reform organization specifically for women of color, which was called the National Association of Colored Women. And she is similarly emphasizing that she is a fashionable woman, that she's a respectable woman. Unlike Sojourner Truth from decades earlier, who really, you could tell that she was suggesting that she's a laborer, she works for a living. You can also tell here that Mary Church Terrell is very wealthy. Um, you can see the fine lace on her dress. You can see the, the fine photographs that she took here and even the props in the background. Um, and we get a sense that she is kind of um, a model leader for, um, for particularly for black women. She very much resembles this idealized um, generic version of the new Negro woman um, from 1904 published in Voice of the Negro, a, a reform journal. And it's at this time in the 1910s when suffragists are starting to shift their tactics even more and doing these public protests. For example, the very first national 
suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. in 1913. And one thing that's really important to note is that even though Mary Church Terrell was working to be part of this image, part of this movement, she wasn't necessarily invited. She wasn't eagerly welcomed into that movement. And we can see from this, uh, this illustration from Puck um, from 1913, the Black women like Terrell, um, like Ida B. Wells Barnett, and many others who wanted to participate in the parade, but these white women are not interested in having them. Um, and in fact, the parade ended up being segregated. Um, and um, Mary Church Terrell was one of the many people who marched. Um, Ida B. Wells ended up desegregating the parade and marching with the Illinois delegation. But I also want to point out that even though this cartoon is making fun of these white women for not allowing black women to march with them properly, we also see the racist stereotypes that people like Terrell and Truth were trying so hard to fight against with their photographs. And I want to show you one of the, or actually the only positive representation of Black motherhood that I found in my many years of doing research. And that is this, um, this image um, from uh, the Crisis magazine originally, but reprinted here as a broadside, as a poster, it's called the South's Battalion of Death, What Votes for Women Means to the South. And it shows a woman carrying a bat labeled the Federal Constitution. Her children are in her skirts. She's trying to protect them. And she's trying to beat down these birds labeled segregation, Jim Crow laws, and the grandfather clause. And so this idea that if women, if Black women gain the right to vote, they will have the power to enact major changes. Um, that is kind of, as I said, the only real positive representation of Black motherhood that I've found in um, women's suffrage um, activism. And that's because um, they really weren't, they were really promoting the vote for white women by this time, um, not emphasizing it for women of color. Um, as we know, the 15th Amendment passed in 1870, um, but in the 1890s, a lot of um, Southern states passed poll taxes and literacy tests and other kinds of exclusionary legislation that prevented men of color from voting. And so by the time the 1910s roll around, everyone is very sure that the 19th Amendment can also pass and still prevent women of color from voting. So this is something that the suffragists are, are fully aware of. And I want to shift you know, to the final years of the suffrage movement and think about um, the ways that World War I played a significant role, um, particularly in um, giving women an opportunity to kind of demonstrate their, um, their, 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 their importance as um, crucial citizens, as patriotic citizens who are not necessarily fighting, which was always a question that um, anti-suffragists put forth, whether women could vote because they were not soldiers. Um, they were offering what they could, caregiving skills in this particular case, um, as nurses. And so we see this very famous poster of a woman carrying, you know, holding to her chest a soldier, a wounded soldier, helping him. And I think that one other aspect of these final years that's really important for us to understand, especially in the light of our current moment, um, is this um, 1918 flu epidemic that um, 
follows the end of World War II. Um, and even though women were vital to nursing during World War One, um, we see in the years after the end of, in the months after the end of the war, the, the spread of the, of the flu, and we see women continuing to be crucial as caregivers during that crisis. Um, and ultimately, even um, the Red Cross finally allows women of color to uh, to be um, part of the organization and actually deploys them, um, which they had promised to do earlier but refused to do. And so the the flu crisis and World War One gives women an opportunity to kind of prove themselves. And a lot of this, um, a lot of the the reasons that people like President Woodrow Wilson give for enfranchising women is because they have um, contributed to the, these efforts um, and that they need their support, that they have um, done something significant for the United States and they deserve to be kind of taken as equal citizens. And so I wanna kind of finish us out and think about the ways that these suffrage images are still part of our culture today. And one is, of course, the fact that Susan B. Anthony still remains one of the most visible leaders of the suffrage movement. This is, for example, a photograph from the 2017 Women's March in Washington, D.C. And we see Susan B. Anthony in the front with the glasses here. Um, she really um, worked to create a lot of the images of the suffrage movement, and we still remember her today because of the work she did. And a lot of what we see today in the news is also um, women wearing white. And we hear that that's um, a, a, a representation of the suffrage movement. And that is true. So in the 1910s, when suffragists were starting to go to parades, starting to march in parades and things, you know, they knew that these photographs would end up in the newspapers. And if they were white, Again, you know, when they were when the photographs were printed, you would be able to see these women in white better in these black and white, white, you know, fairly poor quality um, halftone photographs as if they wore darker um, or mid range colors, you wouldn't be able to see them as well. So that's one reason why um, suffragists actually were white and one of the reasons why we see a lot of um, female politicians choosing to wear that today. And I wanted to, if we were in person, I'd give you a cute little book card with my little discount code. And if you're interested in the book, um, I just want to give that to you. Um, if you get it through the University of Chicago Press, I have this code UCPDO where you can get a, a little bit of a discount on that. So I'm excited to hear your questions. Oh, thank you so much. I just shared a link to your uh, UChicago book page so folks uh, can follow that and of course um, purchase the book with that generous coupon. That's lovely. I have so many questions, but I don't wanna take up much of your time. Of course, this is open to all of you. I encourage you to take a moment to submit a question through, uh, through our Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. I wanna get us started though. Um, I was really interested to see that there really aren't any um, pro-suffrage depictions really until the 20th century, the early 20th century. And even then they're, they're couched as sort of like caregiving, domesticity, religiosity, and fashion, right? I mean, like mm -hmm. it, it seems to take for granted that civic participation is coded white and male. And I think that that's one of the really interesting things that you, you uh, draw upon is how women's right to vote becomes entangled with racial politics that to, offer women the right to vote would be disruptive to gender and racial hierarchies. And I'm curious to know, going back to the 19th century, 
are there images um, uh, pro and con of women's suffrage around the 15th Amendment in 1865? Yeah, so I think that one thing that is lost a little bit more for us today than um, than we might hope is, you know, we see all these wonderful, highly uh, colorful posters and um, that sort of thing from the early 20th century that, you know, were very obviously pro-suffrage propaganda. And that just didn't exist in the 19th century, as you mentioned. But if we were to have Susan B. Anthony with us today or Sojourner Our Truth, I'm confident that they would say that their portraits are that, right? They would see those portraits as them kind of claiming space um, that was otherwise reserved for white male political leaders, as you mentioned, um, which, you know, in that moment, women are really expected to take care of their homes. Um, they're not expected to seek any sort of public stage. And so in some ways, these photographs are, you know, challenging these stereotypes. In other ways, they're affirming these stereotypes, right? So it's suggesting that these women are seeking power and seeking publicity in a way, but they do take that risk, right? I mean, there are very few women in the 1860s who decide to sit for their portrait and sell it. It's, it's just not very common. Yeah, it's a marvelous turn of phrase that the, the shadow supports the substance because even the shadow sort of implies that there's all this that ought to be seen that isn't visible. Mm -hmm. uh, so it sort of gestures towards the absence. Um, it does, yeah, and I, and I wish I, I, I assume that Truth came up with the phrase herself, but I've never found any kind of like, I've never found it on anyone else's photograph, so I assume that she did come up with that herself. Mm -hmm. So um, while we're thinking about the sort of visual material, you've, you've done a nice um, a sort of canvassing of all these different types of materials. We have broadsheets, we have daguerreotypes, we have political cartoons. Like, mm -hmm. how did you organize this project and where, or how do you think about where to look to capture these depictions? Yeah, so this project has a very clear organization in that it had to be chronological. You know, there's always a moment in the in the project process where you wonder how to divide something up. Um, and because these narratives is very much about um, the, the development of the suffrage movement and the development of image technology, they really needed to be looked at hand in hand, right? So we're looking at the suffragists and their opponents, you know, their opponents who are realizing, you know, we can print um, numerous uh, uh, engravings in these illustrated newspapers in the 1850s. Of course, we're going to include plenty of cartoons making fun of these new women's rights activists. And then the suffragists saying, oh, well, actually, you can, you have that illustrated newspaper technology and you control all of these illustrated newspapers. But at least, in, you know, in the early 1860s, they can start distributing and selling their own photographs, right? So this kind of, we see these like, um, these new innovative technologies and how people are kind of taking advantage of them at every single step. So we have some questions flowing in, so I wanna make sure that I don't occupy all of your time. And the first one I wanna to give to Connie King. Connie King is our curator of women's history and a chief reference librarian. Connie has an amazing exhibit that will be opening imminently. It was supposed to be open already, but of course COVID-19 have scrambled a lot of our plans, but it is coming and it will be about, I believe it's titled Women Get Things Done. And it's sort of a prehistory to the suffrage movement, women's activism throughout the 19th century. 
it's going to be extraordinary when it's available and there will be a digital edition that will be available very soon. So I, uh, I, I brag because she cannot, um, but uh, Connie has a great question. Can you say more about the production of the portraits in the six volume history of women's suffrage? Yeah. So as I said, Susan B. Anthony was in charge of kind of choosing who would be in the volumes. And also she was in charge of kind of organizing everything with the engraver. And so we do have some letters between Anthony and various other women's rights activists kind of giving us a sense of what she was looking for. She really did write saying, you know, give me your photograph with your best eyes, etc. Um, and I'll pass it on to the engraver. Um, Anthony required that um, the women pay for the engravings themselves, which I think is a really important um, hmm. piece of this. Um, so Anthony even wrote, you know, I know that requiring these women to pay for the engravings themselves will shape the story that we tell with these portraits, but she didn't know what to do about it. However, she did pay for or raise money to pay for Clarina Howard Nichols's portrait. Um, Nichols was a Midwesterner um, and she um, wrote to her to get her portrait. Um, interestingly, there's this wonderful exchange about, you know, we really want, I really like the portrait of me with having like a home look, so looking kind of like more domestic and less like a women's rights leader, I guess. We don't have the portrait, so we can only kind of speculate on what exactly she meant. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of exchange about what they wanted. Um, there's, and Clarina Howard Nichols even mentions that one of her portraits makes her look like a black person. She uses a much more offensive term than that. Um, but it gives us a sense of, of what the women, what the suffragists wanted to look like and didn't want to look like in the 19th century. Um, Anthony passes them on to a fairly famous engraver, several different engravers, but one, uh, uh, Boutra, um, who did a lot of really fine portrait engraving at that time. Um, Clarina Howard Nichols actually gets her uh, portrait updated between the 1881 edition and 1887 edition. It's mm. um, a very strange story, but basically Anthony is the one who's raising a lot of the money for this, coordinating this, choosing who gets um, put in this in these volumes. Um, of course, she really only does the first four volumes before she dies, and Ida Husted Harper picks up the final two in, um, in the 1910s, but by that time, suffragists have so many other ways of distributing images that it's, the history of women suffrage is no longer the central place to create this iconography of the suffrage movement. Michelle Hong takes us on a global turn here. She asks, were the same images and tactics used by suffragists in other countries? Or is there something inherently American about the way these images were devised and deployed? That's a good question. And for the purposes of my research, I really thought about the ways that American suffragists movement was uh, connected to the British suffrage movement. There's very obvious connections. They attend a lot of the same conferences. They communicate really regularly. There's a lot of travel between those two organizations, between those two places, um, particularly in the 1910s. Uh, women suffragists are going to the UK. They are actually participating in the protests and the marches. I'm sure everyone has a sense of Alice Paul coming back and bringing back these parade um, ideas um, and then eventually the picketing ideas. So it's certainly true that especially by the early 20th century, 
um, British suffragists are actually inspiring a new type of American suffrage imagery because they're no longer just kind of creating it themselves, they're actually attracting it. They're attracting this new photojournalist, which is a brand new profession by the early 20th century. Um, and they are trying to attract publicity to the movement. It was a whole different genre of images that we didn't really get to much um, in this conversation. But um, yes, there's a lot of back and forth, particularly with British women. Hmm, that's great. Mark Lange uh, asks, what event or events made the passage more or less inevitable, the passage of the suffrage? Uh, or was it a domino effect through states' rights? That's a good question. And I think that it's a little bit of everything, right? So the fact that when we think about the passage of women's suffrage over the course of the 19th century, we see a lot of Western states granting it fairly early, right? Uh, Wyoming actually just recently celebrated the 150th year of women voting. They have been voting there since 1869. And a lot of other Western states um, were voting much earlier than that too. But it's not until the 1910s, even the late 1910s, when um, Eastern states actually start passing women's voting rights. And so I do think it's really important, for example, that in 1917, New York State finally passes women's voting rights, right? So finally, we're getting to a place with an enormous population. And I do think that helps tip, uh, tip the, you know, momentum in favor of, of suffrage. Um, and I, so, so when we're thinking about, uh, the ratification, uh, you know, at first suffrage is really debated, you know, should we just fight for this, um, at a state level or a national level? Um, and ultimately the passage of the suffrage amendments by various states helps pass, uh, helps get support for that 19th amendment at the federal level. I mean, I'm, I'm personally curious about why the West got this right so earlier than the East. But um, Ivan Juren has a related question that I'm going to let you sort of dig into. Um, did you have the opportunity to compare images of the suffrage movement in the first states that gave women's, uh, women the right to vote versus the anti-suffrage where, or states where it was, where the, where the anti-suffrage movement was strongest? Yeah, so in the, let's see. So if we're thinking about the, uh, for example, let's say Massachusetts, right? Massachusetts is a place where uh, we had the headquarters of the American Women's Suffrage Association down downtown Boston, which is the far larger organization, not run by Susan B. Anthony, but run by Lucy Stone, not included in, in, in many portraits, so not very well remembered. Um, but Massachusetts was also the home of the very first anti-suffrage association, which yeah. was led by women um, against the right to vote. Um, and in Massachusetts, we see, we were looking at that Blanche Ames uh, image of the woman with her three children around her in this ideal home. So that was the Massachusetts, you know, pro-suffrage picture. The uh, Massachusetts Association for the Opposition of the Extension of the Vote for Women or something very complicatedly long organization like that um, actually printed these posters of a man coming home to see a note his wife had written you know, saying, I'm, I'm out for a meeting, you know, I'm out for a suffrage meeting, you know, leaving the children hungry and sad and scared and tired, right? So these, these images um, are very much in conversation with each other. And anti-suffrage, I think it's really important to remember, is the dominant, uh, the dominant opinion 
well into the 1910s and people are not even fully sure about, you know, suffrage even after the 19th Amendment. I mean, just because a piece of legislation passes even today doesn't mean everyone is fully on board, even if in 50 years, maybe everyone will think, well, of course they had women voting, right? Um, so I think that's really important to, to think about. So my, my, my cue keeps creeping up on me. I have two questions each from uh, Elaine Slater and Liz Elm-Lee. Please forgive me if I've mispronounced your name. Um, I'm gonna give one to each and then hopefully circle back to get to uh, all the outstanding questions here. First from Elaine, uh, were there organized women's groups who resisted women's suffrage? Yes, hi Elaine, Elaine is my colleague. Um, so yes, there are plenty of groups that uh, resisted women's suffrage. Um, as I just mentioned um, before, I'm sure this question was submitted, the, the Massachusetts group was founded and led by women. Um, they were often very elite, you know, very wealthy white women. You know, one interesting kind of minor detail that says a lot about them was that um, when they were publishing material and kind of listing themselves as um, as the leaders of this organization, they often went by their husband's names, right? So Mrs. John Smith, right? Um, whereas the suffragists by that time were trying to get you to know who they were and get you to see them as political leaders. Um, these uh, leaders of the anti-suffrage movement um, were trying to not put themselves as these um, public figures the way that suffragists were. I think it's also really interesting to note that um, after the passage of the 19th and a lot of these anti-suffrage leaders, activists, really, went on to, um, some went on to run for office. You know, they really liked the work of, you know, running a movement, you know, working in politics. And so they ended up um, pursuing it further. Um, so I think that, you know, when we're thinking about these um, anti-suffrage groups, there were women who really deeply felt that they their, you know, their life was privileged by not having to participate in politics, that their husbands, that their fathers, that their sons represented them politically, and that they didn't want to get involved. Um, and I think it's really important to note that, you know, these elite women were often the women who probably were also having dinners at the governor's house and, you know, hosting behind the scenes kind of political conversations um, that a lot of other women who were not as wealthy or well-connected um, didn't have Hmm. Let's jump down to uh, Liz Elm Lee. Again, apologies if I mispronounced your name. She asked, what is the geographic scope of your project and um, what research needs to be addressed to cover more? Sure. So the geographic scope, I really focus primarily on the United States. I do certainly kind of make connections, as I said, to the British movement in particular, but it's really an America-focused project. Um, and when we're thinking about, you know, what the next steps are in um, suffrage research, I would say one really um, important uh, path that we're going on in this centennial, 19th Amendment centennial year um, is really going beyond the familiar story. So thinking about the people besides Susan B. Anthony, who um, were part of this movement, particularly women of color, we've got a lot of great new books coming out. Um, Kathleen Cahill's Recasting the Vote, um, Martha Jones's Vanguard, um, Alison Parker's doing a wonderful biography, the first ever biography of Mary Church Terrell. So we've got a lot of great new voices um, that we're going to be hearing about um, in the next even just the next few months, um, because I think Susan B. Anthony did such a, you know, 
amazing work to kind of create this history and create the individuals that we know today. And such good work that it's been hard to kind of pull the other people that she pushed aside into that narrative sense. And so we're going to see that in the next in the next year or so. Well, I certainly hope that we'll be able to follow up with some links to those books. Sure, uh, yeah. The project so that folks can sort of be on the lookout for them. I want to end with sort of a, a, a fun question that I've never thought about before from Michelle Hong. Is Mary Poppins an anti-suffrage book film? I think that's a great question. I um, have like shown that clip in class and everyone is always amused when they realize when they connect, you know, the, the historical themes that we're talking about in class with this, you know, beloved childhood film where they didn't really think much of it. I mean, I think it's suffragette, the term was a derogatory term at the, in the early 20th century. Um, they were making fun of suffragists who um, kind of belittling them, adding et to something, you know, to belittle them. Um, so at the, in the early 20th century, it was certainly a, a derogatory term. Um, by the mid 20th century, when that film was published, I think it, it's, it's starting to lose that. Um, and, you know, I'm not really sure if it's an anti-suffrage, if it's an anti, I think it's poking fun at the movement. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't necessarily know that it's intended to kind of, I, I'd be curious to see what everyone else thought of that, actually. Um, I think it's, I think it represents a lot of people's opinions on suffrage in the early 20th century, which is that is this kind of absurd thing that these elite ladies are, you know, fighting for. And so in that way, perhaps it is uh, not a positive representation of the suffrage movement, um, but it seems very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We might have time to squeeze in one last question. I'm afraid we can't get to everyone's. My apologies. That's on me. Um, Elaine Slater asked, what was the church's stance on women's suffrage? And when you're thinking about the church, I wonder if we can sort of parse out like Catholic, Protestant, but also schisms within different Protestant denominations. Well, I'm not going to go through every, yeah. <laughs> every single um, American, uh, you know, religious sect, but I think it's really valuable to note that a lot of these early women's rights activists were Quakers, and even yeah. through the rest of the movement, um, Quakers really allowed women to speak up in the church and their community, um, and in a way that uh, was not allowed in Protestant uh, sects that were far more dominant throughout the rest of the United States, right? When we're thinking about the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, I think it's really valuable to remember that the Declaration of Sentiments authored by Elizabeth Cady Stanton did not just call for the vote, it called for um, better pay, it called for better education, it called for women to have a voice in their church communities. And so I think that it's, um, you know, these Protestant communities over time and even still today are still debating, you know, the role that women can play in churches. Um, so that's very much, uh, um, it very much depends on the, on the particular community, but certainly I think we can look at Quakers, um, Lucretia Mott, uh, from Lucretia Mott to Alice Paul, um, all of them growing up in this community. I don't think it's a coincidence that they ended up being some of the, the leading figures of the movement. Absolutely. So shout out to Quaker women. Um, 
<laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing the book. The book, again, is Picturing Political Power, Images in the Women's Suffrage Movement at UChicago Press. You have a coupon code that will get you a generous discount, um, and we'll be following yes. up notes. <laughs> uh, next Thursday, please join us for Carol Adrian Murphy, who's going to be discussing her documentary series, Different Kind of Scholarly Project, about Civil War medicine. Thank you so much for joining us, Allison. Thank you. I was very glad to be here. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you.